Which is the number one chocolate drink? Two pizzas for the price of one. I taste so wonderful. That's a spicy meat. People are being kept confused by the fact that they're being made to focus on nutrients. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. And I'm Tom Philpot, food and agriculture writer for Mother Jones Magazine. Today, our secret ingredient is nutrition. And no one knows the sordid world of nutrition better than our guest today, Dr. Joan Gussow. Beet greens and a lovely tomato salad, fruit and a beautiful potato, soil bread simply me on the table with a little bit of cheese and meat, a little bit of cheese and meat. Talking about nutrition. She is the author of many books, including The Feeding Web, The Nutrition Debate, and most recently, Growing Older, A Chronicle of Death, Life, and Vegetables. The New York Times has called her the matriarch of the Eat Locally, Think Globally food movement. We spoke to her from her home on the banks of the Hudson River about the early days of developing education around nutrition, gardening, where she sees progress in the food movement, and where she doesn't. Well, Joan, why don't we, why don't you start us off by talking us through what it was like in the '70s to be a nutritionist in that environment and to have different ideas than your colleagues had? What what sort of ideas did they have? What what were, were your objections, and how did all that play out? Well, I came into the field thinking I was appalled when I got back to the supermarket after I got married and had children and went back to the supermarket for the first time in 12 years because I'd been in college and in New York living and, you know, living out of delis. I was so appalled by what had happened, and I assumed everyone else was too. (laughs) I mean, what had come into the supermarket was all this unbelievable crap, and I would see mothers wheeling their kids down the aisle with a soft drink and a bag of baby donuts, you know, and I thought, gee, what is going on here? And so I decided to go into nutrition, and I did. I went into the field of nutrition, and then I found out that nutrition, number one, had the field was defined, not defined, but I mean it operated as if it were defined as everything that happens after the swallow. In other words, basically what nutritionists were supposed to learn about was you know, what happened after you ate that food and what happened metabolically and to your health and all that kind of thing. You weren't supposed to look down the, down the pike at all. In fact, nobody ever criticized a food product, no matter what it was. I mean, uh, one of my colleagues in, in Washington personally came out objecting to a new breakfast cereal that had that had cream puffs in it. I mean, <laughs> So you could get your saturated fat with your breakfast cereal. And it was it was just what was happening. There were screaming yellow zonkers. There was, I mean, anything that couldn't be invented seemed to be invented. And it was really appalling. I was appalled, but I my colleagues were not appalled. So I was from the beginning, uh, long before I was graduated, I was like already in trouble. And because this, I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, um, I was just going to say this was in the '70s to kind of um, anchor us here in time. Yeah, I went. I went back to school in 1969. Okay. So it was the '70s, and what was I was trying to think because you had said something in a note to me about that I should talk about the difference between the food movement today and the food movement. Was it just was it just a rehashing of the whole thing? And I tried to think about the differences, and the differences certainly had to do with the attitude of the profession. There's no question that now you would not have even the Dietetic Association objecting to your talking about organic food. They wouldn't say you should eat it necessarily, but at least you could say it without being thought of as a fattest. If you mentioned the word organic in the 1970s, you were fattest. Right. And and, and so I was already in trouble because I testified about organic food before the before the Attorney General of the State of New York. Um, 
and uh, actually got my picture on the on the a page of the New York Times, sitting there testifying with the headline, "Nutritionist approves organic food," which was like a death warrant. I mean, it was like the worst thing that could have happened to me. So it was it was very. It, for me, it felt very unthinking. There was a whole bunch of young people called hippies who were busy eating whole grains and, you know, trying to do all this sort of lifestyle stuff, and the nutrition profession was really appalled by them. <laughs> they were. I mean, they, these people didn't know what they were talking about. They said that they said all sorts of things that weren't true, that couldn't be proven scientifically, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think, for me... The biggest change is is coming in the, I mean, just the other day, and the only famous thing I ever said was, I, and I said it way back in the 70s, when, when if you went to breakfast at a conference with a bunch of nutritionists and dared to eat eggs, everyone would point to you. You know, it was like it, there were all these rules about what you were supposed to do, and certainly you did not eat butter. So to, so I was being interviewed by Marion... Burroughs in the mm-hmm. Washington Post at that time, and she, and she asked me, and I said, I said, well, I eat butter, I do eat butter instead of margarine because I trust the cows more than the chemists, and that's the only thing I'm really famous for. <laughs> I mean, it's been claimed by the head of the Butter Institute. I found it at the bottom of calendars that have little quotes, you know, next to Indira Gandhi. It's wonderful. I mean, I feel so set up by having said that. And just the other day, there was a story. The headline in the Times said. Eating eating butter does not does not increase your heart disease risk any more than and than oils and right. of course oils. And I said so. I was right all those years ago. So for me, the big change now from then is we finally have got a few people at least beginning to say it's not nutrients, it's food. You need to eat foods. You don't, and when when you, Raj, when you said something at the upfront about the secret ingredient, I I forgot, I, or a new ingredient, or what? What's this program called? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the name of the program. The and secret I ingredient. The secret ingredient. That's right. The secret ingredient, and I thought you were going to say that we. So 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 people are being kept confused mm-hmm. by the fact that they're being made to focus on nutrients, and they can't they can't keep track of them. Right. And something new, something's new every day, every hour, about what you should do and not do. And we look like fools all the time because one thing is being disproved or another thing is being disproved. And it's like we don't know. I mean, is an do you, is eating the eating an orange make you healthy because it has vitamin C and folate? I mean, is that all? Given the thousands of chemicals that make up an orange, can we make tang and put folate and vitamin C and make it just the same? The government thinks so. So we we haven't escaped that. You only have to go into the supermarket to know that we haven't escaped that. It's it's gotten worse. I mean, because of course we we've, we've multiplied the product so much that nobody has a you know nobody has a snowball's chance in hell of figuring out what's in anything, really. Um, uh, can I? Uh, no. F- oh, please, <laughs> just once. Um, well, so here's here's the question. In the 1970s, um, the I, I imagine it must have been lonely as a nutritionist to uh, be you know, skeptical about the, the the new and wonderful chemistry that the food industry was playing with. Yeah. But there, there were books like Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Morlapay that sold a million copies. Uh, and oh, I have the, seven. Uh, I have seven books on my bookshelf that came out in the 70s. Eat your heart out. I'm looking at them right now. Eat your heart out. Food for Thought. Um, I can't read all of them from here. The American Food Scandal, Hard Tomatoes, Hard Times. Mm-hmm. Notice that not a single one of them is by a nutritionist. Mm. They're all by, quote, lay people looking at the food supply and being appalled by it. Maybe, uh, Joan, you can talk us through your thought process, though, because one thing that that I've noticed is that you you came at it because you thought looking at nutrition as opposed to looking at the whole foods was not healthy. But now I heard an interview with you, I think it was a couple years ago with a um, woman in New Zealand where you said, actually now 
what what has happened was that now companies have more power over the food industry than people have themselves over what they eat because of the focus on nutrition. Did you foresee that? Did you think that was that pro- part of your reasoning for um, taking a different road than a lot of nutritionists in, in the field at the time? I'm trying to remember if I separated out. I remember being very impressed when Michael Pollan identified the moment, which is, he, he always claims he learned everything from me, but but I never identified the moment when the federal, when the FDA, I guess, the FDA uh, allowed them to take the, the, the substitute uh, uh, label off. If you, it used to be there were recipes, and if you're going to make a pudding, you had to have everything that was in the recipe for a pudding in the pudding. And there's a moment in the 70s, and I believe it was 76, where they were, and if it didn't have that, it had to be called imitation pudding, which was, of course, a crepe label. I mean, nobody wanted that on their package, right? Right. And so they they took that off, and they said, as long as, it, as, long as it's nutritionally equivalent, well, that, that did it. Because... We know so little about what we, you know, we have these what fifty-four compounds, maybe that we've got names applied to them that we pay attention to, of all the compounds that are in food, which are, you know, probably rank altogether in the millions, certainly in the thousands in any food. There's all these chemicals, and and once they said that, as long as you put out a vanilla pudding that had, you know, protein, whatever, whatever, you could you could make it of anything you wanted, basically, and so they did. Uh, and that was the turning point. And I did not, I did not knew that I did not know they'd done that. I think I was still, I was still in, no, I was department chair in '75. So I, I may have still, but I, I somehow <laughs> I didn't catch on to that. So I, I can only tell you that when that my interest grew out of my concern about the planet. That's, I mean, that's where my, I backed into this. Because my husband was an environmentalist, I had read Paul Ehrlich's Population Bomb. I was really concerned about the state of the planet <laughs> and where we were going to have to go to feed all these people and how much environmental destruction was going to happen in the process. And I sort of, I began collecting things out of magazines and newspapers and everything I read. I would collect things, and then I would, when I had the time, I would make a huge. We had a huge dining room table, and I would lay things out to try to figure out where they went. What they ha- what what does this have to do with nutrition? Why am I paying attention? Why do I care about air pollution? You know, why do I care about soil erosion? And I finally realized that it was related to agricultural issues. And I realized that 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 and so I began. Of course, I began teaching the course even earlier. I mean, the course evolved, but the course called nutritional ecology, which I still teach, is really all about how food gets to us and what kinds of things happen because we have certain kinds of food and other people have other kinds of food and you know when when it, when is it going to run out when it, when is the planet going to you know die in the course of it it's gotten much harder to teach over the years because it's so much closer that people can actually see that maybe I'm not crazy but it was really true that I found out later when somebody did a survey of the department the students really thought I was crazy <laughs> that there was something really wrong why would I make them learn about farming for god's sake why would I why would I care about agriculture i mean the separation was so stunning that uh, th- that it's hard to believe now that people really thought that I uh, well there was there was a 1975 there was a world food crisis and there was a world food conference in Rome and in the years leading up to it there was this sort of threat that there was going to be famine there was even a book called Famine 75 in which there was going to, we were going to tip over the edge of running out of food somebody wrote a letter to the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition some young researcher and said, you know, we're faced with the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the journal, this journal, which is presumably concerned with human edu- human nutrition, you, you, there's no sign at all in the journal that anything is happening. And the editor wrote back and said, well, of course, we're all concerned about hunger and malnutrition and, and all that sort of thing. He said, but it's really not our field. Uh, that's that's for the 
population demographers. That's for the that's for the uh, agricultural economists, for all these other people. That's really that's really their field. It's not our field. And so, you really weren't supposed to pay any attention to it. So what progress have you seen then? Because Michael Pollan is also an outsider and he's um, yeah, in, in the first ranks of people who's uh, helped to sort of restoke a food movement, um, particularly in, in the 2000s. Of course. I mean, he's been absolutely central. But then, uh, I mean, a, a lot of the things, I mean, you know, the, 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 one of the things that um, Michael observed when we introduced you to in our, in our class a few years ago was that w- whenever it was that he was going to write something about you know nutritional labeling or soda or uh, school gardens or whatever it was you'd written it 30 years before and better and so I mean, is I mean, is there is there not uh, I mean did you not get a sense of frustration then that, that you, I mean you've been writing about this for ages and we're still writing about it and still writing about it like it's new um, what what do you see that's changed over this time Well, I think the problem, I must say it always frustrates me when people keep, I mean, when you have a major writer of the New York Times saying five years ago when I started writing this column, there wasn't much food, interest in food in the country. I, you know, I would want to want to kill. Um, um, but um, um, it. Uh, let me just say that I think the biggest change is in the in the sort of awareness that there is a food movement, I guess, at the upper edge. It seems to me in the 70s, I was trying to think about this, Johnson's Great Society, I remember when Johnson's Great Society was going on, and he had these community, community development grants or something that were poor communities could apply for. And I remember thinking, oh, God, there's finally going to be a job for one of my students who cares about these issues that I bring up. They can go into this community and they can tell them what to plant in the, in the garden and what, how to fix, how to cook the things they grow and all that kind of thing. But it was very much a, I don't know, it was not, it was not something that anybody who went to a fancy restaurant paid attention to, let's put it that way. So obviously now it's the big thing that people who go to a fancy restaurant think about, or a lot of them think about, whether the food is local, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is that progress? Is it changing anything? I was speaking to someone yesterday knowing that I was going to try to talk about this, and she's somebody who's always telling me when I say we haven't made any progress. She says, oh, look at all the school gardens and look at this and look at that. And I said, so has it changed? She said, well, she runs a group called School Food Focus, which is trying to change the acquisition trying to change the way the the way schools get food and she's trying to make it more local and cleaner as she said they used to get be, be bottom feeders in the school lunch program they got whatever was left over that was crappy like this canned meat so they're trying to change it and they've been working to get antibiotic free or at least less antibiotics the pew thing uh of of not using any human antibiotics in animals they've been trying to get that kind of meat and bone-in chicken into the schools instead of chicken nuggets, which have a thousand things in them. She said, we have a few schools that are really terrific at being able to try to produce change and get and talk. And she said, they're up to 5%. Wow. <laughs> and I, I, I have to say, I look around. We still don't have the right to... Um, we st- the government still doesn't have the right to even monitor... The, the the air pollution around CAFOs, they don't have that right. They can't monitor it like they can't look at gun look at gun violence and how many people it kills. We're not allowed to do that. So I I feel like we're we're chain we have this little group and the interests of this little group have become much more upper class, upper middle class. Uh there's a lot more community gardens. There's a lot more green markets in New York City. There's a, certainly around the country. There's a lot more green markets, and I think that children. If I were to say what I really think has changed, it's the involvement of children, because I can remember in my early days talking about how we ought to have school gardens, and that was thought of as pretty far out, you know. Um, 
so I think that's a real there's a real change. But do do I think the big food system is changing? No, I think it's lumbering on in its own slipshod, horrible way, creating fields full of GMO corn, and not giving a damn whether anybody's healthy or not. I mean, if they, it's like the people who were putting out cigarettes, sitting there in that group of men saying, well, I don't believe smoking causes cancer. These people are putting out these food products that are making us sick, and I don't think they care. I, I mean, I, they, they don't care. Uh, they don't look at it. So we have, we have a very, we have, we have our group. <laughs> we have our own bloggers, and we have, you know, right? We have, we have all this. But is, are we changing the food system? Um, I don't know. I don't. I. I. I don't think so. And I just think that there's what. What's changed is that there's a in within our community. Let's put it that way. There's a much larger interest in food, but it seems to be about going out and eating and taking pictures of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we all who kind of work in this field wrestle with this question and. And when you think about it in one way, you know, that zero to five percent that you just described is a huge sort of victory and accomplishment to go from essentially nothing where, you know, basically when I was a kid in the 70s, um, you know, at least we had we had, we did have women working in the cafeteria cooking food, but the ingredients were, were pretty horrible and it, it, it wasn't great stuff. Um, and then to go from there, uh, where, 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 you know, I went to a public school here in Austin, Texas, where they were getting, you know, very low budgets, um, you know, just scrapping by with the worst of ingredients to go to 5% of schools now are maybe able to, to make a difference. That's a big deal. Um, no, but it's not 5% of schools. It's 5% of one district, which is, re- which is, which is, doing exceedingly well at finding ways to source. Right. Okay, so way less than 5%. But then in other things, we've got, you know, we, we can see organic food sales going way up and rising at 10% per year still. And now, but look at, look at how much of that is processed. True. There are organic Twinkies and whatnot. I mean, I'm not, try, I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm just answering yeah. you. No, I'm, I, I'm totally there with you. But... So sometimes I and and then you also get the rise of green markets all over the country. It's not just in New York. The, yes. the USDA, yes. USDA numbers of farmers markets and community supported agri- agricultural programs are, are just staggering, um, massive yes, growth. Um, but I guess the question let's talk about let's talk about community supported agriculture though for a minute. Okay, are yeah. you are you feeling as we are feeling here that it's it's hitting a down. Point a de- deflection down. The best farmer I know here who fed a thousand people. He had like I don't know five different CSAs, and he's he was the first CSA farmer in New York City, and he's been around forever. He's biodynamic. He's a phenomenal farmer. Yeah. He's way down. He he doesn't hasn't filled up his quota this year. Yeah, I mean I think it's a difficult. Um, it is a difficult model going through growing pains. And I, I think part of it is that people like, I mean, I was in a CSA in New York in the early 2000s, and I'm sure you've been in them over your, over the last 20 years at different times, Joan. And it takes a certain kind of uh, consumer who will roll with the farm and take what's coming off the farm and be very happy that they got five pounds of rutabagas this week and maybe they didn't want them. And I, yes, exactly. I, I love that as a consumer. And then I later was a CSA farmer and kind of had it on, you know, had the experience on the other end. And I think that particular model is shifting, but just because the way people eat, um, most people aren't enthusiastic well, enough to, cooks. They don't want to go to that much trouble. I, yeah. I, I have a, I have a semi CSA here. I, I grow my own vegetables, so I don't need that, but I have a meat, bread, cheese, whatever CSA. Sort of. There are like four of us in it here, and he delivers to us once a month. And and I had recruited some other people into it. And I, I mean, this is like this is like the line. I, one of the people said to me, "Well, Joan, you're the kind of person who'll do that, make that effort because you care about you know you're so involved with these issues." She said, "But 
but you know the lady who comes and cooks she her husband's handicapped and 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 so they somebody comes in she does she, the eggshells are too hard right literally <laughs> yeah well, I mean, I, I think that there is this thing where I think that model is shifting, and and I'm seeing models across the country that are more, you give the farm a certain amount of money before the season starts, and then you pick and choose your vegetables. But I guess the the point that I was trying to make, and I think, so here here's my question. Yeah. Have we succeeded in creating this beautiful niche food market where people can get incredible fruits and vegetables from their area if they have the money for them and they're going to be a rather small part of the uh, of the population that's say 5 or 10%. And then the rest of the food market is doing what you described earlier Joan and just sort of lurching along on GMO corn and being buffeted from one fad to the next and maybe taking this, you know, current demonized ingredient out of foods for a while, but then adding this other thing that's just as bad. Um, so are we creating a food, are we creating a sort of dual food system where the alternative ends up just reinforcing the the main food system? This is something that, that sort of haunts me when I think about it. Well, it haunts me too. I mean, I, I will say this, being in New York and being part of a group called Just Food, which which works with communities, you know, poor communities. There is certainly, there are certainly poor communities in New York City where they have community gardens, which are like centers of everything in the community. I mean, they transform a community to have a community garden into which people can relate. And so I do think that there are, there are, there has been at that level, and I don't know if that's true. I mean, I don't know if that's true where you are in Texas. I don't know whether there are, Community, community food movements in those places that poor people are in charge of themselves and have and have and have gardens and and you know whether it and and, and casitas as they have here where they actually go and sit and play music and you know everything that seems to me to be a different thing that is the fact that some cities will sort of at least allow that and new york city of course bet midler ended up buying a whole bunch of gardens that were threatened and they and saved them there's always the threat of once you clean it up the, the city comes in and takes it away right so so that's a, a chronic problem so i th- that seems to me to be different other than that i think the answer to what you said is yes i feel as if the 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 I mean, the person to whom I was talking yesterday about about the food five five percent of clean food, she said, "Why?" And I said, "Because of the power of the food industry." I mean, it's just enormous. Let's face it. I mean, I used to say to myself, "Farmers are a shrinking part of the population. Why are people always talking about the power of farmers, the electoral power of farmers?" And I thought, and I realized, of course, it has nothing to do with farmers. I mean, they're not making they're not making these laws. These laws are being forced by by agribusiness, by huge corporations, and those huge corporations are not about to give up their power. I mean, all you have to do is look, and you well know this, Tom. I mean, I don't know what kind of hectoring you get. Maybe you're not important enough to be hectored. I don't know, but when your stance on GMOs, I mean, let's face it. I mean, it is it is profession threatening, right, to be against GMOs. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, let's face it. I mean, and if you're a scientist and you come out with a, a negative finding, yeah. I mean, l- let's face it. How many? I mean, who who's going to go into the profession? Who's going to go in and look at GMOs? I mean, who's going to look for the safety? And 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 then you have people saying, "Well, we have 20 years of experience. Clearly, nothing's wrong with GMOs. We've all been eating them, and we're fine." I, who's the control group? Right. <laughs> it's true. You know, you you mentioned this beautiful quote um, in an interview where you said that when you don't have hope, you have possibility. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering where, because it sounds pretty hopeless, but is where do you see possibility for change? What do you see working? Well, interestingly enough, I had I I have taught now for a damn long time, and. I'm still teaching, and so this year's class was as blank-faced as any class I've ever had. You know, the new people living online, they don't respond. I don't know if you experienced this if you've gone out to talk, Raj or, or, or Tom, but 
they're sitting in the audience and they're not used to giving facial responses because they're <laughs> you know, I have they're, seen that in college classes and it is very disconcerting. It's very disconcerting. So my <laughs> class this year, they all came in, they were all blonde, they all had perfect complexions, they all had perfect bodies, they all looked absolutely gorgeous. I couldn't tell them apart. <laughs> and and, and they and and they are not allowed to use uh, electronic things in my class. And so they don't. And so they sit there. You ask them questions. They don't answer. They don't respond. In the only people who responded were people who were, who were sitting in or late older people who sat in. Anyway, they came out here, as they do, for organic in the garden. And I always dig sweet potatoes, have them dig sweet potatoes, just because they get to see this amazing thing coming out of the ground. And they always go, oh, you know, whatever. So I was hard. It's harder and harder to find anyone who will dig. The boy, some guy. There's always one or two in the class will often volunteer. And so the, they're all standing around, in front of me and behind me, and and we're digging this bed. And these sweet potatoes come up. They stand there and they look to hell like they've been botoxed. <laughs> <laughs> and they and they're stand and they don't make a sound. And I said, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> I said, this is actual food you're seeing growing. You can't see this on your, on your smartphone. I said, this is the actual growth of food. And I, I mean, I've told them that I've told this story, so I don't mind saying it again. But, but, but then I read their, I had been reading their response papers. They do a response paper every week, and I was very impressed with their intelligence and how they seem to be getting it. And then we got, we have them do a two-page paper at the end in which they say what they got out of it and so forth. I called my co-teacher and I said, wait till you read these. I have never had such an amazing set of responses. I think, like Sherry Turkle's book, Reclaiming Conversation, I think they don't know how to talk to anybody. Oh. They don't have anything to talk about, and they had they had our class to talk about. And they talked about having the conversations with their parents and with their boyfriend and having ha one of the girls who had been really defiant in class had gotten her girlfriend gotten her boyfriend to look at the Tyrone Hayes thing. She'd gotten it offline and she'd looked at that film about Tyrone Hayes. And it's it's like they were they were totally transformed and very and not depressed and very determined to be activists. And so their responses are coming in a way that you're not used to, but they are responding. Well, they're responding even more. I read something recently about that this generation and that they're I mean, look at the response to Sanders. I mean, they're 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 impassioned these people even though they're not able to show it in a sort of immediate <laughs> way, right? Right. So that I I found that perhaps the most encouraging thing in a long time because they got it. I mean, they when they take this course, they get it. They know they know what the problems are and that they're pretty horrendous and it, when the first time that we used Bill McKibben's book called Earth which was whenever it came out five years ago. We don't use it anymore, but we change all the time. But I said to my co-teacher then, I said, can they handle this? I mean, is this too much for them? And she said, no, let's go ahead and use it. So we don't usually make them read a book a week, but they had to read that book in a week. And and um, I said they could read just the first half, which was the depressing part. They didn't have to read the, the possibilities for change. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, they... they 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 can handle it. They can handle being told the truth, even though they're shocked. And they seem to feel empowered to do something about it, which is very encouraging to me. I hope to hell they are, because I don't know what I'd do about it. I've been beating my head against a wall for many, many years now. And um, <laughs> I, are we allowed to be political, by the way? Yes. <laughs> we, we demand it, in fact. I was talking to someone about about Bernie Sanders and saying the reason I wasn't supporting him was that he's been saying the same thing all these years and he doesn't seem to have accomplished anything. And he said to me, "Well, Joan, <laughs> the same is true of you." <laughs> <laughs> not and so. I said, "But no. I'm not. I'm not the president, and I'm not running for the presidency." <laughs> but uh, anyway, yes, I, I. 
it will take a revolution. I mean, it's not going to happen easily, and that's what I think we none of us want to confront. I don't, I don't know how you make that kind, how you, how you exert that kind. Of, well, no, I do. Somebody said to me this morning, who was here for breakfast, she said, she said, Joan, talk about. Talk about campaign reform. Talk about money reform. Talk about getting money out of the system. And that's true. That's that's the only way. I mean, the only way we're ever going to get anywhere is to get is to get money out of the system. And th- uh, how we do that? Don't don't ask how we do that. I don't know how we do that. But <laughs> that's where that's where we have to go, because the money is keeping the system that we have. As you know, when they changed the farm bill and, and got rid of some of the subsidies, they put in a worse program that's insur- that insurance program, mm-hmm. which is even worse, which is causing them to plow up totally lousy soil and plant corn in it, even if it won't produce, because they get money anyway. So I'm waiting for you guys. You're the, young, you're the youngsters. You, you're the ones who have the answers. <laughs> I'm very old, you know. So, I mean, when you get to be my age, you shouldn't be asked for answers. You should be comforted, and <laughs> <laughs> you're doing a, not doing a very good job of that, Joan. <laughs> but you are making us think, and that's what we have you on here for, um, Joan. You, I want to I want to say one thing because 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 Raj brought it up about my piece called "Women, Food, and the Survival." I was just about to ask you that, but um, oh, really? But, but I was going to ask you about, about that with, with a with a spin, which is that um, you, you mentioned the, the the people in your class. Do you, do you notice more women than men in your class? Oh God! There's usually one or two men of a class of forty. So, I mean, I, I've noticed this about the, the food movement. Um, I mean, w- w- whenever I'm giving uh, talks and you know the, the, the classes that I've given and uh, I'm in, um, it's predominantly women. Uh, and I, I wondered if you could connect what you're seeing there and perhaps t- talk us through why it is that you think that, that there are way many more women than men who are interested in the, uh, the, the food movement in at the undergraduate level in the, in the kinds of colleges that we, we teach in. Um, and, and link that back to, to your fabulous, fabulous piece called Women, Food and the Survival of the Species. Well, the fact of the matter is that it's been a woman's profession. In other words, the, the, food, the scientists who are doing the, quote, research in the, in the labs who were the ones who always, in my time, they were the prestigious ones. They were the ones on the National Academy of Sciences committees. They were the they were the they were the producers of truth. Women were the apply women applied it. Women were in public health. They were dietitians. They were nutrition educators, which is always a less prestigious. I mean, has always been a less prestigious thing. Women, you know, teaching is not exactly a prestigious profession in this country. It should be, but it's not. And so. Women, women just got these. This was where women's work. I mean, this was where women trained to do the work they did, mostly as dietitians. And there weren't many community nutrition educators, but there were dietetics was a big field, and so women studied and became got it. And and then they went. Some of them went to work for food companies uh, because there were those jobs. But there was it was thought of as a women's profession, and it always has been. And uh, one of my colleagues did a dissertation looking at the history of our program, and she came to the conclusion that there were like, there was like this science movement, which is the food science at the beginning, and then in the middle there were all the people applying it. And at the end there were the male doctors. So the food scientists and the doctors were male, and the people in the middle who couldn't do hard research because it's so, because doing quote research that gets published is very tough in the applied fields. They didn't. They never had any credit, and they've always, they've always, and but, but, you know, I, I, I've had, I've had amazing men in my classes, but they're unusual. And uh, as far as the women, food, and the survival of the species, I want to, I just want to make a comment: is that what that was about was saying that that people should be paying more attention to food and women had always been the the the, the feeders and the and the and the and and did most of the agriculture in Africa i mean grew most of the food in Africa and and women had always been central to the to whole issue of food partly i guess because they were the ones they had to feed the infants or nobody would feed them but, you know they were um but but so so that my article was meant to say that we had to value food we had to get women we had but we also wanted to have you know that men did not like the gene for housework that 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 
men needed to pay attention to food too, and that it had to be revalued as a as a as a whole area of study and understanding. And I guess I would say that as an area of of activity and understanding, and not and study. I think quote research is like so overvalued in this country, whatever whatever it means. Um, I used to say I don't do research, I do thinking, <laughs> which is what I did. I mean, I used to think about issues, and I would say, well, now I should do some research. And then I'd realize I didn't have to. The answers were right there if you just looked carefully. And so I think my deep disappointment is what happened to women's lib. I mean, uh, that was a big thing in the 70s. What Women were defying everything and trying to be themselves and be natural and know their own bodies and be proud of themselves. And and women's lib has turned out to be, has been channeled, so we say channeled into being, about having sex as casually as men and being hot. That's what women's lib has turned into. Hmm. And being rich, let's not forget. <laughs> yeah, preferably rich too, yes. But this thing about this terrible, terrible thing we're doing to kids now, it, it's, it just appalls me. I mean, uh, young women, I don't know how anybody gets a young woman through young womanhood to, into being a decent human being, because it's just, it's, we're exploiting small children to an unbelievable degree and convincing them that what matters is how they look from the time they're 10 on. Earlier, actually, they have makeup for very small children, but it's 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 very very upsetting and there's no question that the survival of the species does depend on people beginning to pay attention to these issues as is very clear now but you know as someone found out recently that they went around the world to look at whether aside from catastrophes people's lives were better as a result of global warming. That is, were they in a more measured temperature? Was it whatever, whatever? And it turned out more people were were happier with the way things were climate-wise than unhappy. That is, most people's lives had improved in terms of smaller, you know, shorter winters, what, whatever, more more benign climate. I mean, aside from catastrophes, you know, I mm-hmm. live in this absolutely gorgeous place right on the banks of the Hudson River. I'm looking out at the river right now, and it's sunny for the first time in weeks, and and it's gorgeous. But I had nine feet of water in my yard mm-hmm. <laughs> when Sandy came through. So, does it make up for it? Yes, but people aren't. So people are not worried enough to realize they have to change, and mm-hmm. I. I eat from my own garden. I don't buy vegetables. Whatever, I'm almost running out of potatoes, and I won't have potatoes till I harvest them. I just don't buy anything. And and I think I eat. Nobody complains when they come here to eat. We always eat what I happen to have, and I adjust. I eat differently, but I don't. I don't think anyone's even tried to convince people they ought to do that. Why would they do that? Why would they convince people they ought to do that? I mean, I've been talking about seasonal and local eating for 30 years, I guess, maybe longer than that. I mean, 78 was the first time I talked about in publicly in my book, The Feeding Web, about relocalization, which is 78 is a long time ago, I guess, 40 years. But I don't see many people doing what I do. Uh I figured I had to do it. I had to, I had to, you know, walk my talk, and so I have, and uh, I'm very happy about it. I love the way I eat. It's I don't have to go to the supermarket. I don't have to plow through those incredible collections of things that are there. I go for toilet paper. It's cheaper at the supermarket, mm-hmm. but I don't buy food at the supermarket. Um, and um, the other thing I wanted to. Um, say about this. I've been terrified at Silicon Valley getting interested in food. Does I, does anyone else feel that way? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, we, we had several shows on uh, the, the nightmare that Soylent, for example, uh, is or yeah, the, the, the tech bros getting their their, their hands on the food system. Um, but why why are you scared? Well, it's it's like I see that first that, that first tractor coming over the hills promising my life will get easier. I I 
am, am terrified that they'll they'll well i mean they can't they somebody said that the problem with getting the tech people involved with the food movement is that you can't that they can't they're not used to moving actual things they're used to moving electrons and and with the food with this solve food you have to move food around right or grow it where you eat it where you grow it. But I mean, you have this material object, and that computers can't drive trucks. They said that's that's a fundamental flaw that computers can't drive trucks, and they don't know how to make food move around any better than anybody else does. They can simplify the systems and make sure that trucks are being driven efficiently and all that, but that's not that's not going to solve the problem. Yeah, I just did a piece on some of that stuff, and. I came to the conclusion that food ends up being, and I think this is kind of an important point, food ends up being a pretty low margin business. Mm, mm. Like if you're going to make money in the restaurant business, you don't open a fancy restaurant. You buy 10 franchises at McDonald's and you make you yeah. make a profit, uh, a little profit on selling each burger that grows into a big profit. It's just a very low margin business. Mm-hmm, and so Silicon yeah. Valley is rushing into it thinking it's going to disrupt it and it's going to be, you know, we're going to have the Uber of food or the the Google of food. And, and and it's what you just said. It isn't moving bites around. Google's all about moving bites around and making profit, making huge yeah. amounts of profits because there's not very much physical um, going on there. There's not, there's a bunch of computers strung together somewhere. Um, whereas food is this, you know, this growing food, moving it around, cooking it, preparing it, um, ends up being a low margin business. And so I think Silicon Valley is going to very quickly decide that it's not worth the trouble. And all these meal kits and these gazillions of dollars going into into these things are, are going to flop um, in, in general. Maybe there'll be a couple of huge players, but I, I think it's, it's a, yeah, a giant I, bubble. I agree with you. I agree with you. So, the, so that it's not as scary as it seems. <laughs> I, well, no, I, I, I let, let me be the dissenting voice then, because you, you can already see. Um, I mean, in, in in Austin, we have Uber Eats, um, which uh, which is Uber plus you know, home delivery of uh, of of expensive food. Um, not anymore, though. Oh no, no, we do. Uh, Uber Eats is still here. Yeah, the, Uber Eats is still going, even though we don't have Uber. You know, oh, I didn't and, know that. And, I and it was all done. Sorry. Yeah, no, and, and they're in Pittsburgh um, with their autonomous vehicles, and there's a lot of money in um, autonomous uh, trucking and um, uh, and in you know, passenger vehicles. And it, I mean, yeah, I mean, I see the writing on the wall for uh, the, the taxi industry. It's you know, it's the sort of thing that in 20 years' time um, we, we'll look, look back as sort of antiquated horse and buggy. Um, but I'm, I mean, the, the the way that I get worried with the tech industry and food is in the Long, I mean, there's been a long trend here, but in, particularly in the dumbing down of farmers' knowledge, mm. um, where you know, obviously, the idea of hybrid seed is that you you follow the instructions, you yeah. you spray, yeah. and then you fertilize on you know when, when the company tells you to do it, and you get your return, and then genetically modified crops just, just turns that up a little bit. Um, but Monsanto's biggest re- acquisition recently has been uh, of uh, Climate.com. I believe that's the the name of the company. Oh God, Climate I Corp. know that. Climate know Corp. That. Climate Corp. I'm sorry. Um, yes, that's that. And and, and that's you know <laughs> that that sort of micro level um, big data management of uh, understanding exactly what what needs to happen on every contour of your farm is the sort of thing that um, good farmers know already. And they'll already. control it, and they'll tell you what to buy. There we go. Right. Uh, so th- that that seems to me to be actually a fairly high margin business because it's not just about the food; it's really about the inputs and about the vast amounts of capital that are required to keep that going. So, in in that sense, um, what we lose is yeah. not just uh, you know the the ability to to prepare food, but really the the knowledge that's required to be able to grow it sustainably and the the, the power to be able to experiment to do it differently. Um, and that that stuff I I worry a great deal about, and especially when it's an appendage on because what Raj is talking about is this Climate Corp is an appendage on a company that is the leading company in selling seeds and something. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. The it's, idea that Monsanto acquired the Climate Corp was was, was terrifying. To yeah, me. yeah. So it's because, all integrated. Yeah, 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 and 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 can be insidiously moved in just the way. And what Raj says is true because you're really, really dumbing down farmers. 
I mean, it is it is the ultimate dumbing down of the farmer. You're riding your tractor, and it's saying, "Beep, put a little more nitrogen right here. Beep, do this." Right? I mean, that's it's that's the pretty opposite. much it. Yeah, it's the opposite of the farmer's footprint on the soil. Right? I mean, it's 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 the ultimate in the automation of a farm. And it's one more way the company has its pockets in you know has its hands in farmers' pockets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you ever? Did you ever? Uh, have un, have have the understanding I once got years ago from um, I can't even remember what his name is. He used to be at Queens College. He wrote, um, "Oh shit." Anyway, forget the, for, we won't give him any credit. <laughs> <laughs> he, he said, "The reason the farmer how does the farmer make money? How does a farmer make money? He converts solar energy into something material and sells it. So the minute you take." You start taking away from him solar energy and replacing it with something he has to buy. He keeps going deeper and deeper into debt, and and that you know all the pesticides, all the herbicides, the tractor, the whole thing is all a replacement for solar energy. And it's such an interesting concept. I mean, once you you know once you get that sort of in, does that make sense to you? You're silent. It does. Nobody. No, no, it totally makes sense. It's sort of commodifying what the sun is doing and putting a price on it. And yes, make, since the farmer's profit was entirely made from, you know, using that solar energy, which is free. And, and turning the and farmer he, into consumer. Yes, 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 exactly. Really quick, I know we're running over a little bit of time, but because we're talking about food, I kind of want to go back to the roots. And one, I was wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about when you were coming up and the role of food in your childhood and how you developed your notion of activism and um, your curiosity for nutrition and food. And you grew up in California, <laughs> is that right? <laughs> yes, I did. Well, that's not as interesting as you might imagine. I came from, my, both my parents were from Iowa. They met in California. My mother was the sixth of six children and uh and with all older sisters so she never got into the kitchen so she got married and had not a clue about how to cook not a clue and my father was the youngest of eight and he was sort of didn't like his family so we know but we always went back to orange city where my mother came from to for the summers I would say that I never had a decent meal until I was probably 24. I shouldn't wow. say. My mother tried really hard. You know, she made meatloaf. She overcooked vegetables. <laughs> she, wow. she, she killed. She roasted meat until it gave up and died. <laughs> Again, she's British. <laughs> died she a second death. <laughs> she was, You know, the Dutch were not notoriously good cooks anyway. And her great dish which one time I made the mistake of serving to a friend of mine. No, I didn't serve it to him. He told me about he'd had it someplace, and he was so appalled, I thought, thank God I never served it to you, John, was wilted lettuce, which is what they did at the end of the summer with all the lettuce that was left over. You got you you got the lettuce, and you got boiled potatoes and hard-boiled eggs, and you mixed them together in a bowl and pour, and, ba- and fried out bacon and poured hot bacon fat and, and uh, vinegar over the salad and wilted the lettuce and that was the dish. Sounds kind of good to me actually. <laughs> it's actually it's actually not bad, but that was my mother's thing and she also she made desserts and she often made desserts we didn't like because that way when she offered them nobody took them and then she could <laughs> offer them the next night. So it lasted a lot longer that way. We were very strategy. We were quite poor. Uh, my father lost his job as a uh, was demoted in his job as a civil servant. He worked for the Department of Water and Power, and when I was probably ten or eleven, that we had a new mayor. This would be this would be just before World War II. We had a new mayor who came in and said, "You shouldn't be doing any of this promotion of power because the city is through growing." <laughs> <laughs> Los Angeles Los Angeles is through growing so he demoted my father. Anyway, the upshot is wow. we we ate on very little, but I remember the fruit, the fruit my father would bring we we would go out to an orchard and get a, a lug of peaches and my mother would can peaches or pickle peaches or whatever she did with them. And my father would bring home boxes of blueberries and things from the market, but we we did not I, I did not care much about food and i was not a good eater and um 
and my mother, I did, hated my, my mother's salad. She made salad with a wedge of iceberg lettuce and her French dressing, which had ketchup in it. <laughs> oh, my God. And uh, so, anyway, that's my history. And I came to New York, and my idea of a great meal out was to go to a place that had hamburger, a cheeseburger with French fries and French fried onions. <laughs> and I discovered by carefully reading the menu that if you order them separately, they were actually cheaper than the plate that you could get this three-item plate. And the waitress <laughs> argued with me, and I pointed it out to her, and I was right. <laughs> anyway, because I was very broke, I worked for Time Magazine, and they paid, uh, when, when I first came, I was a trainee, and I was getting $35 a week. So anyway, so I really, until I grew up, and 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 I was doing all this talking, and I got invited to be on the board of the Chef's Collaborative. Oh. And and I was on, which I loved. I mean, I loved the people. I mean, it was like, you know, wonderful people. Um, and I ended up getting all this fabulous food, and I finally realized what gourmet food was. You know, I'd never had any exposure at all to that. I mean, and, and I had no... You know, I have a friend who's Italian and who writes Italian cookbooks, and her, I mean, she just knows from the bottom of her feet all the way up to her head what, what how to cook. You know, that's what she knows. I, I mean, when I came to New York, my big thing was, was a pizza made with English muffin cut in half with, <laughs> with, with, with mozzarella cheese and... Uh, the the little sausage I can't even remember what it's called anymore and little slices of that grilled in the broiler that was like right. my big thing that I could make tomato sauce so Joan it sounds it it sounds like you're you're sort of awakening that food is political that food is ecological etc came before your awakening that food can be delicious is that is that right absolutely absolutely. Huh. So I had no. It's it's so interesting because Alice Waters and I joke. We we met a long time ago. I can't even remember how long ago at some meeting, and we liked each other a lot. And and one time we were doing a talk at Yale when Yale was just starting uh, a community garden or something. They were starting some em emphasis, and Alice got up and said, "You know, I had no political. I came to the idea of good food." entirely because I wanted the food to taste good, et cetera, et cetera, and she goes through the whole thing. And I got up and I said, well, I came to food entirely politically <laughs> wow. because it's true. I mean, I didn't I didn't even get what she was talking about at that point until I'd had a few meals there. Hmm. I'm curious, too. You know, you, you said that, um, or was it the case that you were appointed chair of the department at Columbia Two days after you defended your th your your PhD dissertation. Wow! So what was going on? What was going on? <laughs> I mean, they, they must have been they must have been respecting your work, although they saw it as as coming from the outside. Or or was there something more to that story? Well, what's interesting you have to understand is that nobody nobody at Teachers College. No no sane human being who wasn't in the field of nutrition would have as narrow a view of nutrition as nutritionists said. <laughs> so that I had testified, when I was still a student, I had testified in front of Congress about breakfast cereals that were being advertised to children and how terrible they were and so forth and so on. And somebody wrote to the dean and said, this person is not even this person is not an expert on on television advertising or an expert on anything. This is shocking. Why are you letting this person talk this way? And the dean wrote back and said, "You must not have heard of academic freedom," which I I mean, obviously I felt very defended. And so the thing was that in my profession it was shocking that I did that. But any other American looking at what was being advertised the crap that was being advertised on Saturday morning television, if parents had stayed up to watch it, they would have been upset, but they wanted the television to take care of their children on Saturday morning, so they didn't see it. So you had this terrible collection of crap being advertised to children. But nutritionists were not supposed to talk about that. So the fact that, but TC always, and I had I had written the feeding web and uh, uh, when I was still struggling. Oh, no, I guess I must have been, no, I guess I was chair before I wrote The Feeding Web, how I'd find time to do it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, 
they were. I think they were desperate. If you, I mean, if you want an honest answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other. Well, thing, okay. I think you so wowed them with your brilliance. Let's just say it like that. I mean, it must have been a hell of a PhD. If you defended it, and two days later you were, you were in. No, no, it wasn't the result of that. The dean had already the the. The underlying the underlying story is that I knew the president of the college before he was president of the college. He was the closest friend of friends of ours. He had met me before I ever went to school there. And he had said to me when I called him up because I didn't get into where I wanted, thought I wanted to go, and I looked at the program there and it looked really pathetic. And I, and I called him up and I said, so tell me about the program. He said, oh, come here. You don't want to go someplace. He said, you'll end up being chair of this department. <laughs> <laughs> So he already already knew me. You know what's really fascinating to me, though, about that story is that you also had two little kids at home, right, at this time? So... If would you do you think you would have had the same perspective on nutrition or this really holistic notion of what was going on with the American diet had you not been a mother at the time? Well, I didn't have little kids. I didn't go back to school at all until both of them were in school. So I I stayed home for I don't know 5 or 6 years with kids and then I and then I went back to school and by the time I was department chair they were effectively away almost away from home because one of them was born in in uh uh oh I'm not going to remember 80 Oh, 80, 88 and 89 is that right or 78 and 79 <laughs> <laughs> Probably no, the I'm, 70s no, fifties, probably the fifties, fifty-eight oh. and fifty-nine. Sorry, so so they they were away. They by the time I was working full like all the time, which I did when I finally became department chair, they were away at college. Seth was still home, but Adam was away, so it wasn't. I didn't have little kids, and I I I don't know. I think Adele Davis. I had read Adele Davis, who was considered quote a fattest at the time, hmm. but she was writing about. Books like "Let's Have Healthy Children" and "Eat Right to Keep Fit," and she re- she misread the literature. She was like, you know, this this yogurt is going to give you a rash or something. I mean, she she was full of stuff, but it really convinced me that eating right was important, and so that's how I first got interested in food and diet. So well, I was interested from the standpoint of health, but not from the standpoint of taste. Right. Well, I've got to say that I'm having an image of myself in the 70s as a kid growing up here in Austin, Texas, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. sitting in front of the television on Saturday morning with <laughs> a big bowl of Cocoa Puffs, watch, oh, yeah. watching cartoons and advertisements for Lucky Charms and Cocoa Puffs. Exactly, exactly. And I'm thinking of you back in New York raising hell about it <laughs> and going down to D.C., and um, I think there's just a great symmetry that we here we are having a conversation, and I didn't become some, you know junk food zombie in the end but i ended up yeah (laughs) developing a critique of all this stuff so i just think i just love that image of uh of me doing what i was doing and you doing what you're doing (laughs) at the exact same time i love that image too it's very funny very very funny idea it was appalling what was being promoted actually appalling oh yeah i mean it was bowls of sugar with low-fat milk that's right well, That's right. Whenever I um, return back to to England, uh, and I, I ask if anyone wants anything brought back from from America, my my uh, my, my brother still asks for blue cereal. Um, as, oh, as, really, as, Norman? Yeah. Norman was the blue cereal. Was I, I mean, uh, if you go into um, a large format supermarket today, you you can usually find half a dozen things that that look like they've been made in a chemistry set. Uh, and 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 these these things would not pass basic sort of food safety uh, tests in Europe, I imagine. Um, and so I, I bring them back as sort of art, toxic artifacts from America, and, and people are always and very excited they, to share. Do them. they eat them? They, do well, they eat they, 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 it's, it's mainly grown-ups because you know they don't want to poison their children, but they're, they're quite happy to, <laughs> um, you know, to have them. Have, you know, American cereal and bourbon or something. Um, so no, I mean, I, but but it but it does it, it does seem to be particularly acute and strange here what what the food industry was able to get away with. Well, I remember a, a friend of mine named Venki Eide, who was Norwegian, and whom I met through some project I was involved with. And she was over here, and I went to the supermarket with her. And she just cracked up. She kept <laughs> running around and saying, look at this. Look at this. This is soup 
this is a dried mix to make soup from. And I thought, well, uh, you think that's bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. She simply could not believe it, could not believe that we had these food products. And And of course, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, when I was in Australia, and I was going on in my usual fashion, and 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 they they didn't they they didn't get it. And I found out later that nobody develops special food products. What, what the the crazy stuff other people have usually comes from here because we have a large enough population that it's worthwhile making some new thing because there's always some bunch of crazies who are going to buy it. Smaller countries don't have this kind of pressure from the food industry in this quite the same way that we have because of the they have smaller populations and there's it's not worth developing a new breakfast cereal for you know Australia. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. It was fun. Dr. Joan Gussow is the author of many books, including The Feeding Web, The Nutrition Debate, and most recently, Growing Older, a Chronicle of Death, Life, and Vegetables. On our next episode of The Secret Ingredient, Raj Patel, Tom Philpott, and I will continue our dive into nutrition by talking about nutrients with Dr. Aya Kimura, author of Hidden Hunger, Science, Gender, and the Politics of Smart Food. You can subscribe to the podcast of The Secret Ingredient wherever you find your podcasts, or check out thesecretingredient.org for more information about all of our shows. Our engineer is David Alvarez. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for listening. On the latest episode of Pause Play, we talk about the return of live music to Austin. You'll hear about three live music experiences from the perspective of a fan, three musicians, and a promoter. Thank you very much, everybody. We're a group of Fantasma. Thank you for having us. We'll see you next time. Peace! You can find Pause Play at KUT.org or wherever you get your podcast.